of love and what love is and what it isn't. All you have to do is do an internet search with this, these two words and just kind of see, pay attention to what comes up. Love means, and then, you know, fill in the blank. So one, one answer to that that I discovered this past week was love means taking a chance, which is great if you're going to Vegas. Another uh, answer to this was, love means never having to say you're sorry. The lame and memorable advice from Love Story, going about 60s, 70s, there was a book and a movie, just purge it, just purge it, please, please. Um, the, uh, the cheeky response to that, uh, love means never having to say you're sorry, was love means having to say you're sorry every 15 minutes. That was John Lennon. I don't usually quote John Lennon, but that's not bad. I'll go with that. The one of the best, though, that I've come across as far as love means and then fill in the blank was a little bookmark that I got years ago. And uh, there's an image on the bookmark of a crown of thorns. And then superimposed upon that crown of thorns was this. Love means sacrifice. And, of course, it's taking you, taking us, to the, the, the picture, the reality of, of Jesus having laid himself out literally and metaphorically for us, giving everything he has uh, for us that we might, that we might live. Uh, and, that, and that image, that, that phrasing is actually the whole foundation. It is so fundamental to the Christian life. Love means sacrifice. It's founded on Jesus, and then it's shaped by, of course, you know, as we see even in the upper room on the night before he was betrayed, when he washes the disciples' feet. And he says, you have seen what I have done for you. Now go and do likewise. It's grounded on everything that he has done for us and, and shaped by that as, as, as well, impelled by that as, as well, the whole Christian life. And, and in addition to that, how we think of prayer. Prayer is connected to this as well. Now, this is the third in a series of four messages in this little series on the topic of, of prayer, in particular, uh, praying with Paul. That's where we're going here today. And so we're going to 1 Thessalonians. So if you've got a Bible, I'd ask you to turn there now with me. 1 Thessalonians, that's in the New Testament. It's after the Gospels and after Acts, after a series of Paul's larger letters. Then you get in, you've heard me say this over the last few weeks, a series of T's, 1, 2 Thessalonians, 1, 2 Timothy, Titus. So it's, find the T's, you'll find it. It's, it's in there, trust me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 is where we are roughly halfway through this letter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 13. Hear now God's word. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, 
so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, teach us to pray. We are coming right alongside the first disciples as they came to you, asking that you would teach them to pray. It's the same request, the same prayer that we have now. Uh, Whether we've ever prayed that or not, whether it has ever crossed our mind to ask you to show us to pray about prayer, oh, would you hear us now? It's such a basic thing, and yet we can go so easily awry as we can in everything else in our lives. So easily, so quickly. Um, And you have so much to say and have said so much. And we pray that you would speak now to our, our hearts, make them increasingly open, open to you. We pray in your name. Amen. Whether you're speaking in terms of the world or politics or advertising, campaign slogans are important, but you do want to be careful as to which campaign slogan you choose. They can be helpful, but you want to be careful because there is power in the slogan that you, that you run with. It might be spoken, it might be explicit, everybody might know, you might, you know, just great, it's on cards and whatever. Or it could be hidden, it could be implicit, it could be unspoken, but it's, again, it's, it's a slogan. And they're, they're import, it's important to reflect on that, especially these silent, unspoken slogans, because those are the ones that go unexamined. And again, whatever it is that you have in mind, um, if it goes repeated long enough, but yet unexamined long enough, its power can take you into places maybe you didn't mean to go. So here's a slogan, an unspoken and sadly unexamined slogan that exists in Christian circles, especially today in the 21st century Western world. It's Jesus and me. It's Jesus and me, which is actually a lie. It's completely unbiblical. It's not Jesus and me. It's Jesus, me, and the people around me. That's the way he works. In a communal, covenantal, corporate sense. That's the, according to the design specs. It is not according to our Western individualistic um, mindset in any way at all. It's a corporate reality to understanding who we are as followers of Jesus, as to how we grow as followers, as disciples of Jesus, a corporate reality to it. Very, very basic, very, very essential. It's critical that we understand that. It impacts how we, just how we read the Bible. And think with me about the New Testament letters. Almost all of them, with a few exceptions, were written to churches. Not to your personal mailbox, but to churches. And the first time that they were ever explored and encountered was in a corporate context like this. And then you think in terms of how many times Paul or the other New Testament writers, in their ethical, moral commands, they're in a plural context, you know, do this for one another, with one another, one another, one another, corporate plurality, body life, family life, all of that that you can't do by yourself, by definition. You can't carry out those commands solo. It's a non sequitur. It just doesn't, doesn't work. This understanding that how Jesus intends to 
shape our own self-understanding and the way that we grow affects how we read the Bible. It affects how we pray. From, from the, very, the very basic prayers that, you, that you've, you've ever known, you know, when, when you go even in private prayer to your Father in heaven, he tells us, go with your brothers and sisters in mind. The, the, the first prayer that some of us ever learned, the, the Lord's Prayer, right, from, from the Sermon on the Mount, begins how? Not my Father, our Father. And then you shift from the address, that, that first section, and you move on to the second place, the second part where it's beginning to unfold some of those petitions and some of those requests. And what are we to, how are we told to pray? Give me my daily bread? Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into, you know, you get the idea. So this corporate reality as to how we're to understand who we are and how Jesus works in our lives affects how we read, affects how we pray. And it's just absolutely vital that we understand that. And you see all of that in this text. You see all of that in this, in this text here in 1 Thessalonians 3. What Paul would have us to understand is that Jesus calls us to pray with others in mind. He calls us to pray with others in mind, and we need to learn from the models that he has given us. He calls us to pray with others in mind, and we desperately, all of us, need to learn from the models that he has given us. So what model are you speaking of, Richard? Well, I'm it, Paul is the model that Jesus is putting here in front of us, his own modeling of a life of prayer. And you see that in three ways in this passage. First, in his petition, this is in your outline, they're in the bulletin, the petitionary prayers that he lifts up. You see this, this corporate reality. The second way you see it is in his pastoral concern for other people, which then drives why he's praying. And then not only that, but his passion for people, which is actually what's driving his pastoral concern. In all of that, you see this corporate reality to the life of prayer and to the Christian life in and of itself. So let's look at these in turn. The, the first one being Paul's petitionary prayers. Now, by, I'm going to do something a little different. Typically, when you're looking at Paul's writings, you just kind of move through it from start to finish. We're going to actually go from finish to start, going backwards to see first what he's praying and why he's praying, and then why he's praying, even, be, even digging more deeply than that, okay? So first, what is Paul praying? How does he pray? 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 11 through 13, it's, towards the, it's a paragraph down at the bottom of the text. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Two petitions and one goal. That Paul has in mind. So here are the two petitions. The first one is he longs to be with them. He longs to be with them. There's a, such rich relational history between Paul and this church in Thessalonica. If we had more time, I'd take you to Acts 17. I encourage you to go read that uh, this afternoon. Acts 17, verses 1 through 10, where we read the account of the founding, the planting of that church. It was tumultuous from the start, much opposition, persecution from the very beginning, so hot, so heavy, that Paul and Silas were, had to leave. They had to escape and, and move on, okay? That's, and, and this church is in left, I'm not going to say quite, well, I'll just say it, but not, it's not quite this, this bad, left to fend for itself, okay? 
And, and then a few weeks later, Paul writes this letter back to the church, and we have a record of it here in 1 Thessalonians. That's the letter that he's writing. And, and we hear something of his heart, his concern for these people, especially in terms of how he's left them and, and, and the state in which things stood when he left. So just back up a little bit in 1 Thessalonians to chapter 2, and, and you see something of the starting in verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, he'd only been there for about three weeks, and this is just a few weeks or maybe a month or so later, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And then he goes on there explaining something of the itinerary that they had uh, undergone and how they sent Timothy back to get this report. Timothy comes with this report. And then that brings you into what we just read just a moment ago, starting in, there in verse 6. Point being, Paul is burdened with concern for these people. And therein he longs to see them, if at all possible. He longs to see them, if at all possible. And he's communicating that very, very clearly. So he wants to be with them. That's the first thing. So he's been torn away, and he's been prevented from getting back to them. And so he's pleading with the Lord, open up a path. He longs to be with them, and he also longs to see an overflow of love among them. Again, there'd been some time to teach them, just a few weeks, teach them, train them, all those kinds of things. And you might think, well, but since there'd been so little opportunity for that, perhaps Paul, the great teacher, theologian that he is, maybe his great burden would surely be that he would have a chance to get back to them and do some seminars and, you know, I, I don't know, some symposiums, some conferences and such and get them going again. Surely his, his desire would to train, be to train them up theologically. That's not his burden at all. What is his burden? that they would love, that they would love, have love for one another and love for their neighbor. That is his great burden. I'm not saying that he doesn't care about theology. That's not the point. But that's to serve this larger, larger thing, that they would grow in love. As Francis Schaeffer was fond of saying, love is the final apologetic. Love is the final apologetic. And so that is Paul's burden for these people, that they would overflow and there would be an overflow of love among them, one for another and for their neighbors. That's the two petitions, that he would have a chance to get back to them, to see them again, that they would overflow with love for one another. And then there's this great goal, though. Great as those things are, there's a greater goal that he has in mind, and you see that there uh, in this text there in verse 13. Let me back up verse 11 again. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that, here's the goal, here's the purpose, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This one grand, huge, beautiful, lofty goal that Paul has in mind for these two petitions. There's a couple of things that are worth noting here. It's connections that are worth seeing. One is the connection between love and holiness. The connection between love and and holiness. Love is not just the final apologetic. Love is the sum of the law. Love is the sum total of the law. A life of obedience to God is a life of love. The law shapes and informs what our love should look like. 
Or to put it another way, it's a completely a false dichotomy, a false choice to be forced into saying, well, do you want to obey the law or do you want to live a life of love? No, no, no. That, that, no. Fulfilling and walking in God's law and a life of love are two sides of the same coin. Two sides of the very same coin. Coin. So there's a connection between love and holiness, a connection Paul is pointing out here between holiness and Christ's return and a walking obedience to, to God and his return. He longs to see, and he's praying for this clearly, he longs to see a partial reformation, transformation in their lives, even now with this greater, complete, final transformation and reformation to come. And he's praying with all of that, in mind. So this, this all forms Paul's petitionary prayers. This is what he prays for. This is how he prays, begging a question. How do we pray for each other? How do we pray for each other? I'm not saying we shouldn't pay attention to prayer requests that people give us. They're real. They're legitimate, concrete things. They're also windows into that person's heart in that moment as well. So they're in beautifully, very much worthy of our attentiveness in prayer. But sometimes it is also worth saying, you know, it's not just what they say they need I need to pray for, it's what I know they need I need to pray for, that we would all grow in love. an increase and abounding of love for one another and for our neighbors. And we see that very much so, with, with the end in view, with the end in view, we see that very much so here with, with Paul. Again, Jesus, Jesus wants us to be calling us to pray with others in mind, and he would have us to learn from these models that he gives us, in this case, Paul's modeling, which then takes us to the second point, his pastoral concern. Why does he pray at all? Why does he pray at all? Why bother? Well, it's because of his heart for these people, his concern for these people. So again, you know, I said we're, we're not going to start to finish. We're going to finish to start. So now we're going to go backwards in the text just a little bit where you can see some of Paul's concern and heart for these people. Verses 8 through 10. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So you see, again, his heart, his burden for these people, starting with his commitment to them. Paul truly felt a, a deep seat, a commitment. He felt a sense in which he was, they were bound to him and him to them. There was no sense in which, you know, okay, I've moved on, I'm, I'm in Athens now, see ya, Thessalonica. There's no sense in which he'd forgotten for them and just saying, you know, implicitly, well, fend for yourself. I hope it, hope it works out. There's no sense of that whatsoever. Paul feels this union with these people. He feels himself to be harnessed to these people. It's really quite profound, really quite, quite striking. He's feeling a deep commitment to these folks. He knows their need. He knows what they're up against. And so he longs. 
to do whatever he possibly could to meet that, ideally be face-to-face, ideally come back, if he can. But if he can, in the meantime, he writes and he prays because of this deep, deep concern that he has. Paul sees his relationship with this church, this body of believers, his brothers and sisters in Christ, in much the way we would today see a tandem team of mountain climbers going up a sheer cliff, bound to one another. So this, pers- this one's progress has a really good beneficial influence on the other person's con- progress. And then this person's fall, shall we just say, has a negative effect on the others as well. That's the extent to which Paul sees this yoking, this harnessing, this union, this bond between brothers and sisters in Christ and how he felt, his commitment that he felt towards these folks that he's writing to. He's deeply committed to them and deeply thankful. This is the other thing. He's deeply thankful for them. Deeply committed to them, deeply thankful for them, grateful to God as to what God is doing, the Lord Jesus is doing in their lives. He's heard news from Timothy, as Timothy has sent reports, will come back with reports of what's been going on and how they've been faring and how their faith and their love is not just surviving but thriving in that context in the midst of that storm of opposition and persecution. He's heard that news, Paul has heard that news, and he knows the source. He knows the reason, the explanation. It's Jesus himself who's doing this sustaining them, encouraging them, flourishing them. He knows that, and so he gives thanks to Jesus for this. He speaks to that. He's grateful to God for that, and he's encouraging them at the same time with this. Paul is not, he's not willing to be boxed into the false choice that sometimes some of us are, where it's it's either, well, I'm going to compliment you, I'm going to encourage you, I'm going to flatter you, which really doesn't do anybody any good at all, and so it's that, or, well, because I'm so pious and holy and I don't want you to think any more of you, yourself than you should, so I'm not going to compliment you. I'm not going to encourage you. I'm just going to be quiet. And Paul doesn't go to either one of those extremes. Rather, he gives credit to where credit is due, to the Lord himself, and he speaks it to these people, letting them know, look, I see what he's doing in your lives. Take heart. This is beautiful. We could learn from that. Oh, my goodness, could we all learn so, so much from that. This, again, this is the, the, in the, all in the context of this is the shape of Paul's pastoral concern for these folks. It's why he prays, because he's concerned for them, because he is so um, encourages this, the, the commitment that he feels towards them and the encouragement and the gratitude that he feels and sees as far as what the Lord is doing. He is... Deeply longing to see a flourishing in the lives of these folks, growth in their relationship with Jesus. He longs to see that, and he knows also what they're up against, and so he prays, right? You see, it's the two things together. He longs to see this spiritual flourishing, growth in their relationship with Christ, and he knows at the same time what they're up against, that unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so what? He prays with those two things in mind. He's so deeply concerned for them. And again, we, friends, we could learn so much here. Think of how this should impact and shape our own prayer lives as we think of 
believers who are young in the faith or just young believers. Does it pray for young parents and the struggles with that? Or older parents and the struggle with that? As we pray for people that we know who are struggling with doubts, or perhaps something like what the Thessalonians were experiencing, you know, just real hardcore opposition to their faith. Our concern for them, if we have any, should drive our prayer for them. And that's what we see here with, with Paul's modeling. Again, Jesus calls us to a life of prayer, a life of prayer that includes a concern for others, keeping others in mind. We need to learn from the models that he has given us, which then takes us to the third and final point, not just Paul's prayers and not just his pastoral concern, but his passion for people. So, point one, what does he pray? Point two, why, why is he, the fact that he's concerned, which is why he's praying, but here's the third question. Why is he concerned? I mean, why give a rip? Because he loves them. He loves them, therein he's concerned for them, therein he prays for them. And we see that here also in, in the text, verses 6 and 7, going from finish to start. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Let's talk about Paul for a minute. Paul, you know, it doesn't sometimes it feels like Paul is just like larger than life. He almost seems like something of a mythical hero. Like we're expecting him just to, just to be like 30 feet tall and casting a shadow a mile long. He just seems to be almost a mythical, unreal figure. You know, actually, we do have a description of his physical appearance, the real guy, uh, from about a century later. So we're not quite sure how accurate it is. It would seem to probably have some grounding in truth. I'll read it to you. It's, it's a uh, translation uh, from uh, what we have. A man of middling size, and his hair was scanty, and his legs were a little crooked, and his knees were far apart. He had large eyes, and his eyebrows met, and his nose was somewhat long. So let me sum that up. He's bald-headed, bald -headed, bow-legged, a short dude with a big nose and an unbroken eyebrow that lay on his forehead like a dead caterpillar. Now, I don't relay that out of disrespect. The reason I'm relaying that is to push back against this unearthly, warped, imaginary view that we have of Paul to push into the fact that he's a real man with a real heart writing to real people, and he's deeply concerned in, in real ways. This is not a man of just all piety with no passion, no feeling at all. Paul the man, oh my goodness, what do we see? Well, in verse 6, he speaks of the effect of Timothy's good news upon him. Now, this is striking. This is the one time in the New Testament that that term is used, good news, in a way that is outside the context of a reference of what we usually think of as the gospel 
of the kingdom of Jesus. This is the one time you find that term used in a way that's not that. Now, what does that tell you, the fact that Paul would use such a term when he's describing the effect of, the, of how these people were doing and how they felt still about him? What does that tell you about how large they loomed in his heart? This is a real man with real feeling, real feeling towards these folks. And then there's the comfort that he feels. Uh, the, the comfort that he feels in, in, in how they were doing, how they were flourishing, the fact that they were flourishing, and how they were feeling. Again, how they felt about him. He cared about that. In the midst of his own distress, being driven out of that place, which was hardly the first time, and driven to another and driven to another, and all the opposition, all the affliction, all the distress that he's experiencing and feeling. But to hear how they're doing was enough. To hear how they were doing was enough. That was his comfort. That's Paul. That's his love. That's why he prayed, which then makes me just wonder. We think about just these, these fanciful, mythical ideas as to how we, we oftentimes walk around with when we think of Paul. It makes me wonder that maybe we need to bring the old show Mythbusters back and have them do an episode. Or perhaps get Snopes on this to try and run down some of the, the fiction and lies that have been reported. Or maybe we could just get a few news agencies to you know, report on the number of Pinocchios that come to bear as we think about who Paul really is. He prayed because he was concerned. He was concerned because he loved. You see that? He prayed because he was concerned. He was concerned because he loved. Or if I can put it this way, prayer was the fruit, love is the root. Now, I don't want to ask this next question because I don't want to deal with it myself, but we have to. What does that tell us as to why we don't pray for each other any more than we do? If, in fact, the reason Paul prayed is out of his concern and the reason he was concerned was out of love, we got to deal with that. We need to deal with that and, and reckon with that. There are all kinds of barriers, right? We, we could do a, a little, little some, some time together here today and, and maybe take a survey. You know, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? About the, the barriers, the great barriers to prayer. Why don't we pray for one another any more than we do? Well, because we're busy. Okay, we're busy. Or because I feel spiritually dry. Or maybe I'm, I'm bitter, I'm angry at God. Or maybe I'm ashamed because of, of what I've done. Or maybe I'm just lax and um, just content with how you are and how I am and how things are. Or maybe I just don't care and maybe I don't really think there's much point to prayer. Or maybe it's even worse. Maybe I don't love Maybe that's it, which then begs another question, doesn't it? How do we grow in love? How do we grow in love such that we would pray for one another? Let me just give two very quick answers to that. It's worthy of a much longer answer, but at least something. One would be, to begin with this, act as though you do. 
Don't wait for the mood to strike. When I finally feel like loving this person, then I'll pray. No, 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 no. Act as though you do and let the feelings follow. That would be one. The second would be this. Ask. Act. Ask. Ask the Lord to give you his eyes of that person, how he sees them, how he sees you, and ask him to help you love them. Act. Ask. Jesus calls us to pray with others in mind. And we need to learn from the models that he has given. I'm no mechanical genius. I know from time to time you have to take your car in for a wheel alignment. We all know something of that. You know, maybe even some of you may be familiar with some of the, the signs and symptoms of that. You know, it could be uneven tread wear on your tires. It could be just the drifting. You know, you're driving along, you let go of the steering wheel, and you left or right or whatever it is. Or maybe you're driving along and you're driving straight, but your steering wheel is cocked you know, to, to the left or to the right or something like that. Or maybe even worse, the steering wheel is shaking as you're driving on down the road. Well, those are all signs. What, what needs to happen? Well, you need to have your suspension adjusted. The angle of the tires needs to be adjusted so that the contact that they're making with the road is the way it's intended to be. You need an alignment. How often? I don't know. Every three, 6,000 miles. Depends on who you ask. Friends, we need an alignment. All of us. All of us here. Every one of us. Um, it might be we're... Um, the tread's a little off and we're shaking, we're, we're drifting, um, shimmying as we're going down the road. We need an alignment and learning how to love. How often? Oh, about every minute. <laughs> um, every hour, every day, continually through the day, coming back to who Jesus is, the great king, that he has come and is coming again. He's come for us, made us his own. And think in terms of how that is possible through his life and through his death. He has loved us so. You get centered and recentered upon those things. And it has a way of changing the way you love or just enabling you to love for the first time. And therein to pray. Let's pray now. Lord, we are so thankful as we just stop and pause and consider your love for us. It is really profound, but so needed to be reminded again and again that you love us as you found us in all of our fear and bravado and anger and anguish and pride and willfulness and all our foolishness. You love us just as you found us, and then you love us so that you don't leave us as you found us. Such is your love. Such is your love that you are determined to change us, such that we would grow in love, love of you, loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. You love us so we need this so deeply, and we can't do it. And in your love, you shine light upon us.
and you speak to us about prayer and how prayer and our prayerlessness exposes our lovelessness, which then exposes our need of you all the more. So Jesus, help us to pray and please help us to love as you have loved us. Pray in your name. Amen.